The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So one of the things that's generally true about our lives is that if we change the narrative, the story we tell ourselves, we can change the meaning of our lives. And so today, I am not in a 21st century, modern, technologically adept uh, schoolhouse whose AC compressor has broken. I am a universalist preacher under a tent in a field somewhere in the southeast proclaiming the truth that... There is a love so special, we don't need to be special to be loved, that God's love embraces us all. And when I do that, the sweat means less to me. (laughs) I'm going to be sweating anyway today, because that's what I do. I spitz. My ancestors taught me how to do that before they taught me anything. So join me in the spitz. Some of you, when you scroll through articles, you might get down to the bottom of the page and recognize something that looks like this. That has a particular name, an unpleasant one. They call it the chump box. Blood and guts that they put into the water to attract sharks. This is a multi, multi multi-million dollar industry. That's why it's there. And the thing about the chum box is that it's sensationalistic. It is kind of blood and guts. And so you can read all of these, but, you know, things like notorious movies that were career ending. Um, These pictures prove Russia is the weirdest place on earth. And if you can't see it, there's a person laying down to a fish that's as big as they are. Weird stuff, bombastic stuff, and sometimes really kind of cruel stuff, uh, like body shaming stuff as well, too. But sometimes, and this is the hook that they use to get me, a frame will, and I often won't click on it, but I'm tempted to, a frame like before they were famous. Oh, yeah, that piques my curiosity. What they look like, what were they doing? I mean, many of us know the name Brene Brown. We've done message series about her at Wellsprings. How many of you have watched her YouTube, uh, The Power of Vulnerability? quite a lot of you. There's 42 million people have viewed it. That was in the early 2010s. But before that, she wrote this. I thought it was just me. But it isn't. How many of you have read that? (laughs) Two. (laughs) Daring greatly, daring to lead, gifts of imperfection. Been deeply influential to us here at Wellsprings. But I got to say, before she was famous and she was just Brene Brown, respected Ph.D., social work researcher, taking a look at vulnerability and shame and courage. She's been doing that stuff for decades now. It was all here in this book from the very beginning. That liberating truth. I thought it was just me. But it isn't. If you haven't read that book, I do recommend it. Today's Spirit Flicks message is not about a movie. It is about a story on a screen. It's about Netflix's show, Russian Doll. It's about these two characters. Now, you may have known this, but this past week, Russian Doll was nominated for 13 Emmys. I could not love this show more. It is a combination of Groundhog Day, 
which is the most Buddhist-ish movie ever written and put on the screen, at least in the West, combining also with being the spiritual successor to one of my favorite TV shows of Lost Time, which was Lost. Now, all throughout this show, there are actually little things. They're called Easter eggs that point at the fact that they are drawing right from Lost. And if you don't know what Easter eggs is, well, this morning, this is not Comic-Con. And if you don't know what Comic-Con is, that's why I'm not going to mention anything more about Comic-Con or Easter eggs today. But let me tell you that they know what they're doing. Oh, I got it already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be, we're just in the first page here, you know. Thank you. Thank you. So these two characters, Nadia and Alan. This is mostly, or at least at first, primarily Nadia's story. And it becomes their story. The way in which they are inextricably linked to each other. What happens in Russian Doll, and I just mentioned to someone before the service, I could do five messages about this series, and I'm only doing one, so I'm going to leave a lot of details out. But what basically happens, this is the Groundhog Day part of it, both these characters keep dying and coming back right to where they started. The same situation, dying and coming back, dying and returning over and over again. At first, we don't know exactly why. And then we start to get some hints, some clues that something is being worked out through their lives, something core to who they are that causes them both great pain that is standing in the way of them moving forward with their lives. For Nadia, we see this later on in the season. She had a mother who apparently had undiagnosed or at least untreated bipolar disorder. And whose behavior moved through very wild swings of both moods and behavior. And she was, Nadia was removed from her mother's care when she was just a young child. And she bears that guilt throughout her entire life. And so when she dies and keeps coming back, it's actually her 36th birthday, which for her was... A significant number because that's how old her mother got before her mother died. She carries that wounded memory within her. We don't know as much about Alan's background, but we do know that his father told him at least repeatedly that you don't have a creative bone in your body. Imagine growing up with that message. And for some of you, you don't have to imagine growing up with messages that maybe you received from your family of origin that did not believe in you or did not support you. These two characters are each other's absolutely polar reverse mirror mirror images of one another. Nadia is expressive and profane and everything she does, she does to excess. Alan is locked in. Rigid posture. Thinks if only he can be a good enough boy or man, that he will be all right. And yet everything still does not turn out the way that they want. Even though their stories are different, they have this in common. They live a life almost unconsciously that protects them from authentic connection with other people. A life that is isolated. 
eventually they realize because they both die at the same time in an elevator that's going down one day that their stories are linked. At one point, Nadia says to Alan, have you heard the one, have you heard the story about the broken man and the lady with the death wish who got stuck in a time loop? That's their story. What's really powerful about how this story, about how Russian Doll is told, is that as these loops keep repeating, they remember what happened the time before, but they can't get out of it. And also what happens is that objects and then people around them start to disappear, start to go away. And they are left more and more and more isolated, save for each other. This is a story, my friends, and it's one of the best stories I've ever seen about trauma. About what happens in our lives when we experience experiences with which we cannot cope. Now, sometimes what happens with trauma is we cope in the moment. It's overwhelming. But... We write ourselves. Resilience is as natural as trauma is. And for some of us, what happens is we don't bounce back. We feel as if we are broken. Now, there's also people who experience what's called post-traumatic growth. They flourish after their trauma. After their overwhelm of the ability to cope. But here's the thing. Trauma, when it sets its hooks within us, is not just about the overwhelm of the ability to cope, the ability of the capacity to handle what's happened to us. It also can become an overwhelm of our ability to connect, to really connect to other people in meaningful ways, and that's what we both see from both Alan and Nadia. This story is about two deeply hurting, wounded people who eventually, and this is a very funny story as well too, very sharp, and also a hopeful story eventually, because they live into that truth that Brene Brown talked about before she was famous. It's not just me. That liberating truth, it's not just me. There is so much that this story gets right about trauma and effective trauma treatment. And it pointed out two things I love. Some of you might know the name Andrew Solomon, who has written beautifully about his own deep, despairing depression that he almost lost his life to many years ago. And he has made it his life's mission to understand mental health disorders and trauma. And so he travels all over the globe to do this. And he tells this story in the podcast, The Moth. And I encourage you to take a listen to the whole thing because it is wild, I got to tell you. But there's this one thing that he excerpts talking to people in Rwanda. He said, we had a lot of trouble with this person that he is interviewing in Rwanda after the genocide. We had a lot of trouble with Western mental health workers who came here immediately after the genocide and we asked, had to ask some of them to leave. 
They came and their practice did not involve being outside in the sun where you begin to feel better. There was no music or drumming to get your blood flowing again. There was no sense that everyone had taken the day off so that the entire community could come together to try and lift you up and bring you back to joy. There was no acknowledgement of the depression as something invasive and external that could actually be cast out again. Instead, they would take people one at a time into these dingy little rooms and have them sit around for an hour or so and talk about bad things that had happened to them. We had to ask them to leave. Now, as someone who talks to, has begun in his career talking to a lot of people, not in dingy rooms, and this is true for some of you, I keep this right at the center of my heart. And one of the things that animates myself as a clinician is that it's not just about the problem. You are not the problem. We identify the strengths and the flourishing while making space as well for the fullness of your life, which includes the pain as well. One of the things I love about this quote is it gets right at the heart of everything we're understanding about how trauma may heal for people or the symptoms of trauma may heal for people. It involves our relationship and it involves our bodies, not just what we think. In fact, sometimes the worst way to approach trauma is just through the lens of what we think. And it points to this other wonderful quote, something from a Facebook page called The Trauma Project that I love and check just about every day. This is from someone who studies trauma, Robert Mueller, different Robert Mueller. When we study trauma, we see what a double-edged sword relationships are. Trauma stems from them. Recovery depends on them. The most harrowing trauma happens in close relationships, but recovery can't happen in isolation. I love that because I know that. If you've been around at Wellsprings for a while, you may know that I've shared with you in the past that my mother died very suddenly and unexpectedly. And as it turns out, unnecessarily on Thanksgiving Day, 1992, when she was just 47 years old. What I haven't shared with you, and I'm not going to go into great detail about it, not because it's impossible for me to share, but I recognize it may bring up things for you. I watched my mother die. And I was absolutely helpless to stop it. I mean, so were the EMTs and so were the ER doctors. I don't say helpless in a moralistic way as if I really could have done something. As it turns out, there was nothing I could have done. But you see, that's the thinking brain, right? (laughs) There was nothing I could have done. What my body, what my psyche, what my soul, what my heart believed, not in a conscious way, but I lived it out, is that I felt so completely powerless and helpless to save this person's life who I loved so dearly. Trauma isn't just the one big event. Trauma happens in relationships, losses, or neglect, or people who abuse us over time. And I developed a lot of what we call the symptoms of someone with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know at the time, anxiety attacks and panic attacks that would wake me up in the middle of the night, and obsessive compulsive disorder, 
checking to shore everything, make sure everything was safe, but nothing was ever safe enough, and a deep depression and despair about how powerless I felt to make myself or other people safe. And I developed a really nasty drinking habit as well. Now, I got treatment. I come from a family of resources and means. I mean, I once saw a classic New York City Upper East Side psychoanalyst that my dad paid out of pocket. And this was in the 1990s, mind you, $250 an hour for. He did nothing for me. (laughs) I saw some other better clinicians. But they always treated my anxiety, my depression, my OCD, my substance use disorder in isolation as if it was mine. And it wasn't until many years later, 11, 12 years later after my mother's death, that I began to work with one of, in my life, God's true angels on this world. Reverend Dr. John Mann wrote, we met in a little church as he is a pastoral counselor, right off of the place where all the exciting things happen, Ocean Drive in Miami Beach. And it was kind of a dingy room. But he was the first one who ever helped me name that what I was experiencing was trauma. And he gave me a safe enough relationship to be able to gently enter these now decade-old memories without feeling that it would take me all the way down. Because the truth was, if you knew me back then, especially when I was drunk, I was pretty good at hiding it many other times, but I could be a really self-pitying, angry, extremely unpleasant person to be around. For me, the biggest part of my recovery is relational repair. Reverend Dr. John Manrote gave me that gift. It wasn't just me. Me who thought functionally at the deepest basis of who I was, I was alone and helpless, he gave me that liberating truth just by simply naming it. It wasn't just me. There is a revolution of life change in those words. That has profound implications for our world. This is a picture. Go ahead, a couple slides to a group called Game Changers that is associated for Drexel's Center for Nonviolence and Social Justice. It is dedicating to working with young African-American and Latino men who have been both perpetrators and victims of violence. They call it Game Changers because as one of the young men says, the game is not designed for us. The game is designed to lock us up and forget about us. But we are changing the narrative. The young men described coming from hell, coming from places where they have lost multiple family members to gunfire and violence. And now what they will do is they will send one of their own into a room, into a hospital room where a young man is recovering from a gunshot and help them start to know that they are not alone and to start to navigate the maze 
of behavioral, emotional, and medical care that is in front of them. You are not alone. This is something they do every single week in Game Changers. They call it their circle of hope. One man who is new to the program stands inside the circle and receives affirmation of love and what is right with them from all of his peers. You are not alone. This is the secret of every effective and life-changing support group and community that has ever been. You are not alone. It is not just me. It is not just you. One of my favorite words is the word refuge. It plays a big role in my life as someone inspired by the Buddhist path. I've come to believe that refuge equals commonality plus safety. Commonality, you are not alone. And it is safe to be vulnerable here as you are with your light and your shadow, your wounds and your hope. Safety, of course, only takes us so far. That safety of that commonality that comes in refuge is that eventually we find, can find, that it is safe enough to do this. To open up our hearts to this life and to one another again knowing that it is always risky to do so. And that risk never goes away. So with Nadia and Alan, actually this weird story of magical realism gets even weirder. <laughs> and their timelines, which were connected, split. I'm not going to try to describe to you how this happens or why this happens. Just go with me, please. And what happens is the healing version of both of them that has been building throughout this season remembers and recognizes in the other person who goes back to the beginning of their timeline and doesn't remember the other person. The person who is healing holds the truth and the wisdom of their own healing and has to find a way to get back to the older version of Nadia or Alan that doesn't remember any of the work that has happened. I love this because it says that our own healing is never an act of selfless self-sacrifice. In fact, the thing that allows us to play a role in healing in another person's life is our own healing. That way we get to contribute to the collective healing all around us. Earlier this summer, if you were here, you heard some of my, what I now recognize as anger, holy anger, sacred anger about the movie A Star is Born. And I said, basically, we have enough stories of romantic tragedy already, enough stories where the inevitable destruction feels so awfully goddamn inevitable and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And I said, we need better stories in our society for our individual and collective liberation and healing. And that movie was not it. This show is it. 
or one of the its. And so I'm going to end here with this quote. When Alan and Nadia remember each other again. And those split timelines merged. Think about it. You know, when we know or we feel that we are deeply broken and cannot heal, it's all about different parts of us being segregated or separated out. And so the capacity to integrate is what we're seeing on the screen. And Alan, who it turns out, his first death came about because he took his own life after his long-standing relationship came to a close and there was nothing he could do to fix it. And Alan decides to live. And Alan says to Nadia, you promise me I'll be happy? And Nadia, in her own profane way, says, no. <laughs> but I can promise you that you will never, ever be alone. We can't promise us we're going to be happy, certainly not all the time. Maybe none of the time it feels like. But when we show up and we do our own work and we share that work with each other, we get to fulfill that promise. Not happy all the time. But you, I, we are not alone. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Original basic source of blessing and wholeness that never leaves us even when we experience ourselves as broken, as fragmented. May we recognize that this of healing is never linear and does indeed involve all of us. Even if what we have heard today, we may think, you know what, that doesn't apply to me. Look at your friends, look at your family, look at your coworkers, and we will see trauma all around us. And then the question comes to us, how can we be those who create the nest of belonging and belovedness so that all of us are called back to that original blessing that is our birthright? Imagine if our world was this way, if we approached what we were afraid of, Rather than with punishment or condemnation, with healing, with hope, with appropriate boundaries, with a willingness to take part in that one great healing to which we all belong. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's Wellsprings, the letters uu.org.